This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Kevin Barry read his story, The Pub With No Beer, from the April 11, 2022 issue of the magazine. Barry is the author of six books of fiction, including the novel City of Bohane, for which he won the International Dublin Literary Award, and, most recently, the story collection That Old Country Music, which was published in 2020. Now here's Kevin Barry. The pub with no beer. He hadn't noticed the voices at first. In the endless stretch of the afternoon, he entered the pub through the side door with a soft, hushed aspect, as if broaching a place of burial. It was late March by now, the clocks about to change, and the first heat of the year was intimated when he raised the blinds a few inches to allow the sunlight through. He did so as to show the place up. The effect of the light was to insinuate life. The motes of dust in the sunbeams were life. He opened the windows a fraction to freshen the air and looked out. The bay was filling on a neap tide and the stags of Broadhaven thrust at the clear white skies in raucous appeal. Softly, softly, turn the wheel softly, Michael Bat said. Until I'm blue in the face, I'm telling that boy to turn the wheel soft. But will he listen to me? In my sweet hole he will. Boy took down Egypt tree from the mother's side. He sits in behind that wheel, and it's like he's wrestling a fucking gorilla. The boy was long since raised and driving temperately. Long dead was Michael Bat, the father. But the corner stool at the bar was still vaguely Bat's terrain. At an L to it sat six companion stools to face the optics and the hung spirits arranged beyond the row of taps. The Serberian taps, his own father had called them. For Cerberus, he would curtly explain, he who had guarded the gates of hell. At the other end of the bar was the curtained hatch to the back kitchen, then the sorrowful passageway to the jacks. He smiled. At Michael Bat's words, the air of long sufferance that was hard-practised for effect, the lines that were rehearsed as Bat walked the shore road toward the lights of the pub all those lost evenings ago. He stepped behind the bar and placed his hands upon it lightly and looked out to the room and moved his eyes slowly left and then slowly right across the empty stage of it. Now, he said. He took up the cloth and dampened it in the sink and ran it along the bar top. He brought up a quiet shine. The intention of the polishing was to approximate soft labour. Daily, the bar top was polished to show its grain and the nicks and scratches of its great age. The pub had been his father's for the long shift of four decades. His father, in turn, had taken it from a bachelor uncle. 
For three generations behind this bar, much the same set of thick, knitted eyebrows had insisted on a semblance, at least, of decorum. The sunlight crept by slow inches across the floor. It was the moment, in more usual times, of the primary school's letting out, and he missed the high, excited chatter from the yard across the way. Neither loudness nor drunkenness in this barroom had ever been tolerated. There is such a thing as a thoughtful pub, his father had always maintained. He rinsed out the cloth and left it by the sink and dipped beneath the bar and went down the passageway to the jacks. He stopped halfways along and put a palm to the wall to steady himself. A rising feeling in the lungs was endured, a kind of maritime swell. He believed it to be a species of panic, but it passed over again as quickly, as quickly as the clouds off the North Atlantic passed. His phone pinged and he squinted to read a text. He spent half a minute then tapping a careful reply to a worried aunt in the family WhatsApp group. Would she ever leave the house again? And would she ever get off the fucking internet? The tread of his dependable step, the family listened for always. This was increasingly a burden to him. It could be one of forty-two things that's wrong with me, Frank Watt half-whispered to a pint of Smithicks. It could be the stomach acid. It could be the pollen. It could be worse than either. And of course it could be just the fear. Watt had lived until he was two days shy of ninety. He had been some and fifty years dying. Watt had been a man for the low tables rather than a barside perch, an antisocial man who needed people. From the passageway he looked back now toward the barroom, toward the lost voices. The five empty tables were lit in the afternoon glare. Continuing on, he entered with an apologetic air the realm of the ladies. He opened the window above the sink and sprayed the one toilet with Dettol. Bringing his broad face close to the mirror, he breathed slowly on it to make a fog, and as the clouds slowly dissipated, it showed the weary stare of his ageing, greenish eyes. The little map lines of bloodshot. The twist of the nose, a Frenchman's nose, the foolish pride, the ageless vanity. The extravagant eyebrows of a disgraced Christian brother. He closed his eyes. A long, sensuous parade of lips had been painted in this mirror. That particular dog comes at me one more time and it's getting the queer end of this stick, Alice Nealon said. Every night, half gone seven, on the one walk I can feckin' muster, the bastard come at me, him with the long face out of the Sullivan Yard. Egypt dog, Egypt dog come lollopin'. Next time I'll open the ignorant face on him. Always, she began her evening with a decorous half-pint of stout. It was followed by another, then, after a pause for 
deliberation, she would announce in a startled voice that she would nearly chance a full one. Three more would follow before the double Jameson at eleven that would send her to the door, rosy-faced and muttering darkly against the dogs of the vicinity. He left the ladies and entered the gents, and never in all his time had it smelt more passable. He opened the window anyhow. He ran the taps, he flushed the toilet, he took the rubber gloves from his back pocket and changed the tablets in the urinal. He pissed on the fresh ones for good luck and ritual and laughed to himself gently. He laughed to himself frequently these times. There was a strange hilarity to the predicament. He had been closed now for almost four hundred days. As he re-entered the barroom, three slow knocks sounded on the front door, followed by two rapid ones, as if a code were being employed. He went to the window and looked under the blind and saw a blocky man in late middle age, faced to consider the bay, the stags, the equinoctial sky. He did not recognised the man, but his mood turned quickly sombre as he moved to the front door. An experienced publican is an educated reader of mood's nuance. It wasn't debt by any chance that stood there. As he opened the door, the man turned to him with an owl's incredulous eyes and spoke lowly to inquire. There's a cuckoo, hey? Oh, there is, he said. In the bushes beyond the schoolyard. He'd let you know all about himself. Loud all right, a throttle on him. Would you sell me a pint? I can't do that. The man let his jaw drop in an exaggerated, vaudevillian way. Are you not allowed to sell takeout? Some are doing so in the towns. I'm not. I have no stock at all. Hard old times, all right. I noticed the window was open, thought I'd chance it. There's no harm in that. You wouldn't recognise me, I suppose. No, but I'm trying to place you. It was true that he was. The stranger was fastidiously keeping the two-metre distance, and he had to narrow his glance against the sunshine to make him out. The face had... An antique bearing, it was somehow medieval. The clear, hard gleam in the eyes, these were eyes that might seek a quick killing. But he spoke pleasantly enough. I grew up not far from here, he said. Age receded from the stranger's face then to allow an O'Casey be made out. A poor family from a sad stretch of the shore road they had been. One of those families that had broken up and trickled away in all directions. They'd left a wound of a house behind them. The gaping maw of the blank doorway had stood on the shore road for years as invitation to the miseries banked within. It must have been three decades since the family had lived there. Hadn't there been a story about the father gone mad? Are you an O'Casey? he asked. 
The man smiled broadly and parted his lips to show a proud battalion of remade teeth. It'd be a long time stepping out from your own shade, he said, confirming the speculation. The afternoon conspired with its languors. The heron stood beyond time on the rack-encrusted rock. The Ocasi peered across his shoulder into the gloom of the barroom. I'd take a whiskey, he tried. I suppose if I don't charge you for it. He turned from the doorway and crossed the floor of the barroom. His breath was coming more thickly now. He dipped beneath the bar and polished a whisky glass that did not require polishing and set it beneath the optic to fill a single measure of powers. He was watched all the while and smilingly from the doorway. I've no ice even, he called out. A drop of water. I don't take it. He brought the drink and placed it in the stranger's hand. I don't remember which one you are, he said. There were a few of ye, I think. There were eight of us for children, O'Casey replied. Your father would have put mine out of this place more than once. Is that right? The man turned his face bayward again and bore down on the slow years, the decades. He sipped at the powers and made no comment on it. The world had grown so quiet in this season of eeriness. Down the long solitude of the shore road, across the new fresh green of the fields, upon the clear and boatless bay, there was not a soul otherwise to be seen. One night my father came home from this place trembling, O'Casey said. I remember he sat looking into the fire and I could tell that he could hardly breathe keeping his eyes fixed on the bay, letting them fill up with its springtime radiance. O'Casey dredged from the past a woman's voice, his mother's, and it was perfectly got. What's wrong with you, Joe? Wrong with you, for the love of God, did he say something? My mother worried over him all the time, O'Casey said. His nerves weren't set right. He had what she called his spells. I'm sorry, I don't recall any. Ah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't recall any of it. You'd have been away at the boarding school. The greatest mystery is how others perceive us. The pub had been a respectable premises always, and he could not have imagined that the family was other than well regarded. But he realised, too, that the charge of snobbery is often an astonishment to those so arraigned. O'Casey finished the whisky quickly and held out his hand to offer the empty glass, but as he reached for it, O'Casey withdrew it again, as if playfully, and he did not smile. He just set it down on the stoop by his feet and turned and walked away. He re-entered the pub and locked the door. He sat at a low table in the guise briefly of a customer. He looked around the bar for a slow minute. No sing-songs, no recitals, no displays of romantic affection. 
This had been a house that favoured schoolmasters, respectable farmers, country solicitors. The meagreness of his world closed in. In such a quietness, all was amplified. The veils slip away, the edifice itself might crumble. In late March of the year, the light was rawly new and revealing. He'd mind a mouse for you at the mart in Ballina, Tim Godfrey said. A careful man, he would not be found wanting. A hard enough tack to have a father the like of that. He must concede that it had been. It was many years since Godfrey had haunted the premises, had across the low tables roamed a humorous gaze. Godfrey had been a Church of Ireland farmer from the Ox Mountains, transplanted by a peculiar marriage to the North Mayo Plain. From beyond the place himself, he could see it more clearly. True enough that his father had been a careful man, Growing up in the house of such a man, you could hear yourself thinking. Without a single word being said, you could sense that you were being measured for what tasks might be presented. The running of the pub was at slow lent presented. He rose and went behind the bar and set a glass beneath the optic and poured himself a large bushmills and diluted it with three or four teardrops of tap water. He drank it in a swoop and felt the slow fire descend into his belly. It was years since he had taken a spirit. The charge of its heat stirred him powerfully. He had felt the intensity of anger in youth. He had not wanted this place, but had allowed himself to be shaped to it. There was a resentment he had never quite named before. He shook his head against this feeling and came out from behind the bar and went to the window and raised a blind another fraction and saw the expanse of the bay and the stags of Broadhaven looming and the cormorant arranged gothically on the black glister of its rock. Time could not be measured in the usual ways. The markers of day and evening had fallen into disuse. Subtracted from his routines, he was no longer the full equation of himself. These afternoon visits to the pub were to simulate routine, but now they were failing. They were filling increasingly with the old, lost voices. He went to the door and opened it and leaned down to take the whiskey glass from the stoop where O'Casey had left it, but there was no glass there. He closed the door and locked it again. He sat at a low table. The sun was moving without regard and rounded the building and suddenly its light filled the kitchen out back. He felt drawn to the light. He remained at the table. Voices swam around him. One entered the others. Fred Coakley's, Andrew Mack's, Tess Hennebrys. I've only two speeds of mood. Easy going, ten mile an hour. On a hundred and fifty, I lose the rag altogether. I goes from naught to Hiroshima. What to be fucking wrong with me? 
Would I eat? I don't know what I eat. Would you throw on a sandwich for me anyhow? I'm not saying I'd eat it, though it might steady the ship a small while. Your father should have been a priest, but didn't he have a brother one already? Two in the family would be kind of going to town on it. He was alone with the voices. He wanted to be away from them. He wanted to travel past himself and across the fields of the bay and beyond the horizon and into the equinox, into the light. Rising and gauntly now, he crossed the barroom floor. He went under the bar and into the kitchen. The kitchen always had been the sanctuary of the house. Draw the curtain and it was removed from the public view. Once in this room, he had seen his father weeping. Time unspooled, unreeled. Angered by a customer, thrown perhaps by an intrusive comment, riled by some perceived slight, his father had withdrawn to this room and silently wept. To be a publican was a lifelong performance. People need steadiness, his father said. They want to look into the same expression on your face always. You've to arrange your misfortunate face for them. The look his father arranged for the barroom was tactful, indeed almost priestly. He had offered a place of calm and reprieve, or at least such was his intention. The sunlight that came through the kitchen threw its shabbiness now into awful relief. He closed his eyes against the sight of it. He tried to imagine another life but could not. From the bar, a voice made imitation of the stuttering caller at the Ballina Mart, offering some dubious charolais. For four forty, for four forty, all the way home, have eaten nothing about ye at all. For four forty once, have it, for four fifty. As the men laughed in response to the soft mockery, he was again a small boy. He sat on the bar counter with his legs dangling and a glass of coke at his elbow, packet of potatoes ripped open beside it. Perhaps he was five or six years old. The men were back from the mart. His father poured pints of stout until they were a third shy of the brim and lined them on the counter to settle for a little more than a minute before finishing them with a wristy flourish. The voices in the room were in easy conspiracy and had great warmth. The mart must have gone well. He was spoilt and fussed over as the son of the place. An old man told him he was to be fattened for the mart himself to see what he would fetch. He knew already how to slap away and mock the comment. Get up the road, Gertie, he said. The peat fumes and the stout opened the men's mouths for them. The Mayo team was a disgrace. There were fellas togging out who had drank the winter. The waft of Carol's cigarettes and majors. Pint bottles were taken down from the shelf for those who objected to the gassiness of the draught. 
Newspapers were folded over and the debts column squinted at with sour interest. He knew that his father spoke to God in the night. Once he had heard his father whisper so in the night. His father told God that he was very proud of him and of all his godly works. A high tide sounded beyond, roughly and unseen, in heavy booms and deep answering echoes, and as the wind roared to his boy's mind, the stags were baying at the sky. Such was his world then. He was the prince of the room and invulnerable. He could not himself speak to God. He stepped from the kitchen and into the barroom and wrung out the cloth in the sink. The voices in the bar of more recent times had been an affront to him. They offered themselves baldly as a front. Their bodies were arranged barward in aspects of a front. The voices of recent times, he felt, were coloured by avarice and vulgarity. He had come to that unfortunate age when he believed the young to be savages. He closed the windows and drew down the blinds against what light the March evening had mustered. Age wore down on him. The voices faded out and left nothing at all behind. He might sell the fucking place yet. He left through the side door to walk by the water for a while. He could never sell to the price you'd get for it. There was barely a ripple on the bay. There were no people anywhere to be seen. There was, across the slate grey water, a sensation of great silence and now somehow of peace. The year again turned on its slow wheel. That was Kevin Barry reading his story, The Pub With No Beer. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2010. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Sherman Alexi reads Where I'm Calling From by Raymond Carver. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.